Tyree Nichols was 29 years old. His family and friends remember him as a great kid and a beautiful soul. He was energetic and outgoing. He was even goofy. He had a four-year-old son, and he worked the second shift at FedEx, returning to his mother's house briefly every night at 7 p.m. for his late-day lunch break. Tyree Nichols loved his mother. She says he even had her name tattooed on his arm, which made her proud. And he loved skateboarding. Tyree Nichols' family says he was pretty good. That was his passion. He's been skating since he was six years old. That day, when he left around three o'clock, he was on his way to Shelby Farms because my son, every night, wanted to go and look at the sunset. That was his passion, going to Shelby Farms to watch the sunset and take pictures. That is what his mother says Tyree Nichols was doing on January 7th. He was driving to Shelby Farms in Memphis to take in the sunset before coming back home for his mom's sesame seed chicken dinner, which was a meal he loved. His mom said Tyree almost made it. She says he was less than 80 yards away from her house when he was stopped by five Memphis police officers who say they suspected him of reckless driving. Tonight, Memphis police have released footage from police body cameras and stationary cameras, which captured that January 7th encounter. In order to understand what happened to Tyree Nichols, what the police acting in the name of the state, what they did to this 29-year-old man, we are going to play a portion of the newly released video. But before we do, I would like to warn you that it is very difficult to watch. So let's take a second. If you don't feel up to watching this right now, or if you maybe have kids in the room with you who you do not want watching this, we are going to give you a moment before we play the footage. Okay. This is some of what the Memphis police released to the public this evening. Just trying to go home, he said. The police chased Tyree Nichols on foot and then they beat him. Attorneys for Nichols' family described this footage as three minutes of unadulterated, unabashed, nonstop beating. They have compared it to the 1991 video of Los Angeles police officers beating Rodney King. Police at one point seemed to kick him and then whip him with an object. 
And while he is still on the ground there, you can hear his very last words. Watch out, watch out. Ah! And Nichols was taken to the hospital in critical condition. He died three days later on January 10th. Yesterday, the five officers who stopped him that night were charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, and aggravated kidnapping, among other charges. Earlier today, Tyree Nichols' mother, Rovon Wells, was asked for her reaction to the fact that her son cried out for her as he was beaten, ultimately to his death, by the police. My heart just breaks, sir. For a mother to know that their child was calling them in their need and I wasn't there for him. Do you, do you know how I feel right now? Because I wasn't there for my son. I told, I had an, uh, I was telling someone that I had this really bad pain in my stomach earlier, not knowing what had happened. But once I found out what happened, that was my son's pain that I was feeling. Mm. And I didn't even know. But for me to find out that my son was calling my name and I was only feet away and did not even hear him. You have no clue how I feel right now. No clue. Joining me now is Rashad Robinson, president of the racial justice organization Color of Change, and Eddie Cloud, chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Rashad, it's, um, it's really, uh, as a human being and as a mother, it is very, very difficult to watch this video. And I wonder how you, <laughs> how you think about this moment and what you make of it and what your thoughts were when you first watched that video. You know, I knew the video had to be just heinous and awful, given how quickly we saw accountability when we never see accountability that quickly. Um, I also um, just continue to think about, we're almost three years since Ahmad, Brianna, and George, and all of the work, all the movement energy that has happened that has forced some levels of accountability on individuals and in different police departments and has helped us elect more reform-minded district attorneys and has helped us raise the sort of specter of this issue. Um, but we can't keep just having sort of people fired here and there or individual sort of pieces of accountability that don't get us to the systemic nature of policing, which is about control and not safety. And part of the work that we try to do every single day is really deal with the fact that we have to reimagine public safety in this country. And we have to deal with the incentive structures at the root of what we're actually getting. There's incentive structures and there's a systemic nature that consistently time and time again, protects, rewards, and makes this sort of possible. And even when we have these collective moments, we'll get sort of uh, someone fired or someone going um, to jail or to prison. But what we don't get is the wholesale sort of changes into the infrastructure of policing. This is not about a bad apples here and there. This is about the very ground that policing um, is built on. Professor Gloud, um the, there are moments 
in this video, I mean, the, the, the absolute depravity of what happens here. I mean, and I agree with Rashad. There's something about the system and the, the, sort of the ground upon which the, the seeds of poisonous policing have been planted. But there's something that is such an indictment of humanity. I mean, there are moments after they beat this man effectively to death where you see the police officers bend down and tie their shoes or ask each other if they found their glasses or help each other with uh, uh, eye wash saline solution for the pepper spray that they've mistakenly sprayed themselves with. And it shows a concern for each other's humanity that is completely missing when you talk about Tyree Nichols. Their inability to see him as a human being is shocking. How do you, what do you think of our society when you see this? You know, there's a kind of generalized disregard when it comes to uh, black folk in this country. It, it, is, it is a part of our history. It's a part of our present. And you combine that generalized disregard with a form of policing that presumes absolute authority precisely because you represent organized state violence. And so part of what we need to see, I think, Alex, with, with regards to this horrific video footage, and I'm just thinking about Tyree's mother, and I'm thinking about his son, and I'm just thinking about the loss and the public grief that we have to see again over and over and over again. But when we think about the, the video footage, think about the beginning of the encounter. When the police officer approaches the car and he snatches him out of the car. And think about how he's talking to him, talking at him. Think about the level of violence in the voice and in the action. That happens every single day throughout this country in communities of color. Every single day, there's an interaction between the police and black and brown folk and poor folk where they are dehumanized. They have to assent to the absolute authority of someone who refuses to recognize them as a, as a rights-bearing citizen. And then that eventuates it elevates every now and then to someone dying. So I want to say that at the heart of it is this generalized sense of disregard that is a part of a form of policing, organized state violence, that whether it's Kim Potter, whether it's Peter Lang, whether it's these five black officers, or whether it's white police officers, when it comes to addressing uh, people of color and communities of color, they don't give a damn about who, who, who the body that's standing in front of them. Those bodies are expendable, it seems to me. Um, to that point, Rashad, uh, Tyree Nichols' mother, Ravon Wells, told CNN that police attributed their use of force to her son's, quote, superhuman energy, right, which made it difficult to put handcuffs handcuffs on him. That is part of the dehumanization as well, right? The, the conversation they have amongst themselves about how, how he was do doing this or doing that, none of which has been borne out by the evidence we've seen thus far or what the officials have, have pointed to as probable cause. There has been none thus far. And the, the, the idea to excuse away something that is so morally repugnant by blaming the victim effectively, his superhuman energy, his recklessness, they're doing it because it works, Alex. They're doing this because time and time again, this mm. is the playbook of police unions, of um, 
prosecutors who don't hold police accountable. This is the playbook of mayors and city councils. This is why we are in this situation. There's no lone wolves here. This is part of the infrastructure. We are actually getting what we are paying for. And until we actually hold our elected officials accountable to deal with this and they stop being afraid of the people that they're supposed to oversee and supervise and hold accountable, then this will continue to happen time and time again. I remember sitting in the Obama White House um, with the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, and there was a meeting among civil rights leaders and policing, and the head of the Fraternal Order of Police said, all of this talk of racial profiling is new to me. How do you even begin to have a conversation about reform with someone that is literally gaslighting us about the very idea of something that we know exists? So we are not having a conversation with um, honest brokers. And so when movements are actually putting out sort of really clear demands, whether it's reform demands or whether it's a bigger vision for public safety, we are not having a conversation with people who actually want to see any changes. They want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And maybe they'll add a little more diversity. Maybe they'll add a little more black and brown faces to the police forces. But we know, regardless of the industry, it's you can the culture have, of the police. It's the culture of police. You can have more black bankers, but if they're still stealing black people's homes, I don't care what the color of their skin is. And the police departments can be more diverse than ever, and we can be less safe. And that is a result of sort of, um, you know, failed practices time and time again, and not the infrastructure. And the other thing, Alex, I think is important, is mm. that we live in a larger culture and a larger sort of society where we condone this. Every single day on TV, we watch TV and entertainment shows that are showing police beaten, beating and harming uh, black and brown people. And then the next scene, the young black kid is in the interrogation room, no ribs broken, no face beaten in. And we don't call that heinous. We call that entertainment. That is such an important point, mm. by the way, we normalize violence against black and brown bodies. Professor, I, the, the other thing that we have done, as, as I took, from trying to reform a system that doesn't want to be reformed, is we've put a lot of the onus on the victims themselves, right? There's been a lot of talk about the talk, mm. the conversation that parents have to have with their young black children or brown children about how to behave when the police stop you. And what is so chilling about this video is you hear Tyree Nichols in a very calm voice. I'm just trying to get home. You guys are doing a lot right now. The police are are acting in fury. And here is someone who is doing, he was running the playbook that any parent would have their child run, which is stay calm, don't be antagonistic, don't be aggressive, do what they say. And he died anyway. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about the talk that could save my son if he runs into a cop who's having a bad day, there's nothing that could save him. There's nothing he could do that could turn that cop down. Just like we saw it with Tyree. I mean, he even spoke calmly. Okay, I'm on the ground. And what we heard in response to that, I wanna just say something that, that echoes something that, that Rashad said. And I want to put it in a phrase, diversifying evil doesn't change the meaning of the noun. Diversifying evil doesn't change the meaning of the noun. You could put black faces in, in, these, in, these, in these institutions that are fundamentally corrupt at their core. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of the institution. This is what Baldwin was writing about it, the evidence of, not, evidence of things not seen in 1987. 
when he was trying to come to terms with all these poor black babies being killed in Atlanta with a black mayor and a black chief of police and, 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 and the city too busy to hate, right? So you're right. There's nothing I can do as a parent to protect my child from organized state violence in that way. And don't put it on me. Don't put it on us, right, in some sense. But uh, we have to name it for what it is. I'm sorry. We have to name it for what it is. I just want to say, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the police, but I, I want to remind everybody that this was a 29-year-old man <laughs> who loved skateboarding and he loved sunsets and he was goofy and he loved his mother. And we should not forget his humanity as we talk about the ways in which state-sponsored violence has denied him his life. Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, and Eddie Glaude, chair of Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Thank you so much, guys, for spending this time with me. It's a hard night, and I am really thankful for your time and thoughts. Ahead, we will get to what the Nichols family attorney, Ben Crump, called institutionalized police culture. Radley Balco and Samuel Singyawe, founder of the Mapping Police Violence Database, they join me coming up next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I want to show you a video the Memphis Police Department released tonight featuring the night that Tyree Nichols was arrested earlier this month. It is incredibly violent and it is very upsetting. So if you would like to turn away, now is the time to do so. This video is from a poll camera nearby, so it doesn't have sound. You can see that while multiple officers already have Nichols held down, another officer walks over and kicks him in the way that someone might kick a football. Then he backs up and kicks him again. About 20 seconds after that kick, another officer pulls out what appears to be a baton and starts hitting Nichols. Again, this is all happening while Tyree Nichols is already restrained by multiple other officers. From there, the officers seem to almost take turns holding Tyree Nichols back and slugging him. They do it again and again until finally Tyree Nichols collapses. Now, the reason I want to show you that video is because of how zoomed out it is. And you can see in that video that it wasn't just one officer, but the whole unit acting together. The official justification for that traffic stop that night was Tyree Nichols was recklessly driving. The chief of the Memphis Police Department has since said that the department has no proof that reckless driving actually took place. The unit those police officers in 
we're in was known as the Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods Unit, but it was known primarily by its acronym, the Scorpion Unit. The 40-officer unit of the Memphis Police Department was launched in November of 2021 in response to the city's record homicide rates that year. It focused on patrolling what the department deemed to be hot spots of criminal activity. Today, the family of Tyree Nichols called on the Memphis Police Department to disband the unit immediately. The chief of the Memphis police has ordered a review of that unit. But how much of an incident like this can be blamed on a single unit? And how different is that unit from how police act overall. Joining us now is Samuel Singyawe, founder of the Mapping Police Violence Database and the organization Police Scorecard, and Radley Balco, author of Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Thank you both for being with us tonight. Samuel, I, I want to start with you first. When we talk about this quote-unquote elite unit, the Scorpion unit, do you think in many ways it actually, having a unit like that leads to more police violence rather than the opposite of what it is intended to do? So you see this uh, happening in cities across the country. In New York City, the NYPD famously had its anti-gun unit, the plainclothes unit that was disbanded and then reinstated uh, under Mayor Eric Adams. Um, so there are these units that are concentrations of oftentimes the officers that have some of the worst records within the entire department, the officers that use force at higher rates, they're more likely to be named in complaints, uh, they're more likely to have lawsuits against them. Um, and in many cases, those are officers that are empowered to be on these units um, that harass communities, sometimes on SWAT teams that harass communities with militarized equipment. Um, but it's not just about any one unit. You can't blame this on any one unit or even those five officers individually, because this is a system. Every single year, the police kill more than 1,100 people in this country. Uh, last year uh, was the largest number of people killed by police, uh, according to our organization, which we track this looking at public records requests, uh, pub articles from local media, police statements, uh, and information from state databases across the country. We found nearly 1,200 people were killed by police last year, more than three people every single day. Um, and that Memphis Police Department, when you look over the past decade, Memphis Police Department has had a rate of killings by the police slightly more than the national average. Um, but there are police departments like Albuquerque, uh, police departments uh, like St. Louis that have rates of police violence more than double that of Memphis. So there are places across the country, um, hundreds, even thousands of police departments that have the same or even worse conduct than what we're seeing in Memphis. And so we can't just look at one case um, or five officers or one unit. We have to look at the system as a whole that continues year after year to kill more than 1,100 people in this country. Riley, when you, to Samuel's point, when you talk about the system, when you even talk about the reforms that some, some, uh, you know, some police departments are undertaking, they don't seem to be working. I mean, Memphis, according to the reporting, had like in the last two years instituted a number of reforms meant to cut down on incidents like this, a ban on chokeholds, de-escalation training. I mean, they were trying to implement the stuff that is really supposed to stave off behavior like this. So what is the lesson we're supposed to take from that? Well, I mean, they were doing some reforms, but they were also creating an elite police unit that 
uh, was given the name Scorpion, right? I mean, we have um, a problem in police culture more generally, but I think Sam nailed it when he said that these elite units are sort of a concentration of the worst aspects of, of policing. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that beyond these units, you don't see abuse, but you do see uh, much higher incidents of it. Um, uh, Sam mentioned that NYPD unit, that was the unit that killed uh, Abner Luima. Um, we just had a, a huge trial in Baltimore with the gun crimes unit there. You know, surprisingly, when you create a team of police officers and you tell them that they're elite, uh, you tell them that they are sort of the, um, you know, the the, the uh, last kind of line of defense against crime and anarchy in the city. You let them have a name like Scorpion. Uh, a lot of these units have, you know, skull and crossbones or other kind of symbols of death as their uh, their motto or their logo. Um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when you take a unit like that and sort of give them the implication that they're above the law or they get to bend the rules. And then we see things like this happen. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's you know, changing police culture is not an easy thing to do, uh, but we should at least sort of not go out of our way to contribute to it. What, Samuel, is it your understanding that these elite units are sort of exempt from the narrative or the discussions or the lessons that other parts of the police department are the trainings that they have to undergo, et cetera? So it really depends on the police department. The thing with the United States, you know, there are 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, local, state and federal. They each have their own policies and practices and leadership, funding sources, et cetera. And so uh, it could be that case in Memphis, but it may be very different just, you know, a few miles away from Memphis. And that's part of the problem is how decentralized policing is. And that's part of the reason why we haven't seen much wholesale change with this system. Because for every one, two, or three departments that maybe does get a Department of Justice investigation, maybe they're required to implement a variety of different reforms and changes. For every one of those police departments, there's another police department that's moving in the opposite direction, that's doubling down on the policies and practices that got us in this mess, that's creating new street crimes units um, that are militarizing those units and giving them more authority to cause harm. Um, so I, I think the, the big picture problem is um, that the system as a whole is allowing for um, not only individual officers, but agencies, police departments, year after year to continue to kill people or harm people, um, black people at, at rates much higher than white people, um, and without any accountability, without any systemic changes. And at best, you know, even in, in, in a every 2% of cases in which people are killed by the police, you get an officer who's charged um, and less than 1% of an officers convicted. Um, but even that, you know, is is not going to wholesale change this system because those agencies are still in place, those policies are still in place, those units are still in place. Radley, the there there is some talk about the relative youth of the officers involved in this. Um, I think the officers charged in Nichols' death were hired from 2017 to 2020, and they were ranging from 24 to 32 years old. Do you think that factors at all into this? Is that a red herring? I mean, I know some folks, Mark Lasser, who's a former Memphis police agent, said he'd seen younger and younger men recruited to these kind of elite specialized street criming forces. Does that, does that play a role in any of this? How do you see that affecting what unfolded on January 7th, if at all. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think these issues are limited to younger officers, but when you create one of these elite units, which are supposed to be sort of staffed with the best of the best in the department, then you staff it with guys who are 24, 25, 26 years old and, you know, haven't been in the department for more than five years. Um, 
you know, I, you, you kind of have to question just how elite those units really are. You know, the other thing, I mean, that we need to sort of think about is, you know, the, the police officers who train these guys as soon as they get in, the field training officers tend to be sort of the cop's cop, right? These tend to be guys who, I mean, it's not a particularly desired position. It also, uh, in particularly corrupt departments, we've seen this in um, uh, the LA Sheriff's Department, for example, the people who are recruited to those positions, those training positions, tend to be uh, officers who have a lot of, had a lot of disciplinary and corruption problems of their own because there's this effort to kind of um, uh, indoctrinate uh, the recruits sort of early on so that they are a cop's cop, right? And not sort of the reform oriented cop. Um, so you take that, you know, these guys who, who get that kind of training and then immediately put them in one of these units and tell them they're sort of elite and they have sort of special privileges. Uh, they maybe don't have to follow the rules that all the other department, uh, the officers have to follow. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it is a recipe for disaster. And again, you know, I don't want to suggest that the only problems in policing are in these units, but I do think that we see a, a particular a concentration of those problems in them. Samuel Sinyawe, founder of the Mapping Police Violence Database and the organization Police Scorecard, and Radley Balco, author of Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Guys, thank you both for your time tonight. Tonight, President Biden has weighed in on the violent footage of Tyree Nichols beating. Like so many, I was outraged and deeply pained to see the horrific video of the beating that resulted in Tyree Nichols' death. It is yet another painful reminder of the profound fear and trauma, the pain and the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. We'll have reaction coming up next from a member of the Memphis City Council. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. The city of Memphis is reacting tonight to the body cam footage released by city officials showing the violent police confrontation that led to the death of Tyree Nichols. Within minutes of the video being published, our NBC reporters on the ground saw protesters heading to the police headquarters in Memphis. They were chanting, no justice, no peace, while holding signs with Tyree Nichols' name on it on them. In another part of the city, protesters were seen blocking highways and intersections, including the Arkansas-Memphis Bridge. We are also seeing peaceful protests elsewhere in the country, in Washington, in New York, in Boston, and Seattle. The White House held a meeting this afternoon with mayors of more than 15 cities to coordinate support as metropolitan centers braced for public outcry. The Nichols family, officials in Memphis, and the White House have all called for peaceful demonstrations, and thus far, that is exactly what we are seeing. 
Joining us now is Memphis City Councilwoman Rhonda Logan. Ms. Logan, thank you for making the time this evening. We really appreciate you being here. Um, could you just give me a sense of what the discussion has been among local officials about the death of Tyree Nichols and the decision to release this video? Uh, absolutely. And uh, thank you for having us. And first and foremost, I want to extend my condolences to Tyree Nichols' family. As, um, our prayers go out to them. Uh, legislatively, we have looked at the importance of swift action in terms of um, looking at the policies and, and units like this and making certain that we um, really take a deeper dive into police reform. Can I ask you about a proposal that Ben Crump, one of the attorneys, has has suggested called Tyree's Law, which is effectively um, basically saying that police officers have a duty to intervene when they see a crime being committed, even if those crimes are being committed by their fellow officers. Is that something, do you think, that officials can get behind? Oh, absolutely. Uh, most certainly looking at this, that's the one thing that resonated with, with everyone. Um, the fact that the officers and personnel stood around and did not help, did not do anything to uh, de-escalate the situation or to, to help uh, Mr. Nichols, who was clearly um, in distress and under duress and they just stood around and did nothing as though they didn't know what to do. Some, you know, appeared not to know what to do and others just were somewhat indifferent. And that was the part that was really disheartening. The fact that um, you have been uh, under oath to protect and serve uh, the citizens of Memphis. And that did not happen in this case. The, the decision to release this video on a Friday evening was made because schools were out, businesses were closed, as opposed to another day of the week or perhaps another time. Um, what was your reaction to this video when you first saw it? Uh, emotions were raw, extremely raw. Uh, they, they, you know, spanned the gamut, spanned the spectrum. I was deeply disturbed when I heard Mr. Nichols call for his mother. Uh, when I heard him ask or say, what did I do? Um, I, I was really disturbed by that. And then I became outra- outraged when I saw the officers standing around doing nothing. When I saw them punch him and repeatedly um, kick and, and, you know, really uh, beat him. Uh, and he was not fighting back. He, you know, was almost helpless. And so, and then I became outraged because I, I felt at that at that time, you know, you had 10, 9 to 10, had several officers on the scene and no one went to his aid. What do you think people should what is your suggestion to your constituents? What should they do with their outrage when they see this video? Well, as a legislative body, I think it's it's incumbent upon us and imperative that at this time we really peel the layers back on um, MPD. You know, we really peel the layers back on our, our laws and ordinances and, the, and um, 
training and recruiting. Uh, we did uh, convene a public safety task force in 2020 to look just to look at that recruiting, hiring, training, and retaining public safety officers. We wanted to make certain that we took a deep dive. We took about six months to really look into it, and you know I was really again outraged because of the work that had been done, the work that um, was being done. We have a new police chief. We have a new um, DA. And as I said, we as a as an elective body, we have been working toward um, making certain that the MPD is people centered. The officers are trained. Um, they that we have our community policing and, you know, we are putting funds behind those efforts and to see this and to see those officers just come in and total disregard for the work that has been done. Um, you know, I, I what what really bothered me was the fact that they were new to the force um, and they were young. Um, and, you know, it made me really look at what where was the supervision? What uh, how were they allowed to be on this elite or this specialized task force and new to the force? And, um, you know, they could not have really known the city of Memphis uh, well enough to be on a force such as this. So that's going to be something that we really have to take a deep dive in, how effective these types of yeah. units are when um, they're new. Well, there are a lot. There are a lot of questions. I think very much outstanding in all of this. We've just learned that two deputies have been relieved of their duty pending um, the outcome of an administrative investigation since this video has been released. Absolutely. So uh, the the um, investigations continue. Memphis City Councilwoman Rhonda Logan, thanks for your time, ma'am. Coming up, we will talk to the lawyer for the Nichols family, Antonio Romanucci. That is next. We are following the developments out of Memphis, Tennessee tonight after the release of the disturbing video of the traffic stop that led to the beating that ultimately killed Tyree Nichols. Earlier today, before the release of that footage, Nichols' family and their attorneys reacted to the news that all five officers involved in his death were charged with second-degree murder. Those attorneys also called for the city of Memphis to disband the Scorpion Unit, an elite police, an elite police unit that those officers were a part of. Joining us now is one of those attorneys, Antonio Romanucci. Mr. Romanucci, thank you for making time tonight. Um, I know it's been a very, very busy day for you. Let me just first start with some of the new news we have that two additional officers have been uh, relieved of duty since the release of that video. And I will read the statement from the uh, Shelby County Sheriff. Having watched the videotape for the first time tonight, I have concerns about two deputies who appeared on the scene following the physical confrontation between police and Tyree Nichols. I've launched an internal investigation into the conduct of these deputies to determine what occurred and if any policies were violated. Both of these deputies have been relieved of duty pending the outcome of this investigation. Are you surprised that we are still in the that, that officials are still in the process of figuring out who is involved in all of this, given the fact that they've had the video for at least a little while now? So, look, I, I'm, first of all, I'm not surprised that there are more officers being relieved of their duties. I will not be at all surprised when more charges come, more criminal charges come against police officers. 
Am I surprised it's taking this uh, taking this long? I've been around long enough that I've I've had to wait six months, a year, or two years, or not at all for charges to come. So the fact that 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 at least the administrative part of it is coming, I think we know what's coming next. They're going to be looked at criminally. Also, um, these officers who failed to render aid, who did not intervene, they should be looked at administratively and also criminally. Yeah, it seems like that's part of the issue. I mean, obviously, there is the the central issue of what had happened to Tyree Nichols. But the bysta- the onlooking, the bystanding on the part of police officers, of first responders, I mean, that speaks to an, another part of the sort of cancerous culture that has affected this part of law enforcement and, again, first response. I mean, to what degree is that something that people are focusing on. We know that there are a lot of attempted systemic reforms of the of the law enforcement, but this part of it, the, the ability to stand by as a fellow officer, effectively beats to death a, a civilian seems like mm-hmm. a very big problem in law enforcement. Well, it really, what it is, it's a paradox of law enforcement. They're there to protect and serve, to do the right thing, to be there for citizens when they're needed for safety purposes. But then when you see them act in this contraindicated way, it does create confusion. It causes mistrust. That's why we have this imbalance between community and police, because they are doing the exact opposite of what we are told they're supposed to do. Right. I, the, the, the N in Scorpion um, is supposed to be for neighborhood. It's the C is supposed to be for community. It's supposed to have a feel good sound to it. But instead, as now we've heard, Scorpion really has a very deep sting and, and they caused a death here, a very needless death. Can you have been dealing with the family? I wonder if you could give us a sense of how they are managing this moment. I, I, I've, I am just staggered by the strength of of Tyree Nichols' mother to speak about the death of her son publicly in such eloquent terms. She talked about how he was sent here for a purpose and that perhaps uh, awakening the country or further further alerting the country as to the the, the, the horrific abuses that occur on the part of state-sanctioned, uh, you know, violence, state—awakening the country to that violence on the part of police. I mean, that potentially is his mission, if, if he was indeed on a mission here. How— are they how are they grappling with the fact that the entire country is going to be watching what is effectively the execution of their son? Well, you, you raise such a great point. I mean, the words of her, of his mom were that he was here for an assignment. That is so profound. That is incredible. And and I've watched this bell curve of, of their emotions now, you know, since the beginning up until today. And and I believe that the only way that they can heal amongst themselves, within themselves, is to know that Tyree was here for an assignment from God. And and let's make this an assignment for our country. Let's let Washington hear us. Let's rejuvenate the George Floyd Police Reforming Act. Let's get a vote so that we can have uniformity amongst the states so that we can then not have this disparity in policing from state to state. Let's all follow and play by the same rules. Antonio Romanucci, attorney for the Tyree Nichols family. Um, I I cannot imagine what the conversations are like uh, right now, but for all of us on the outside, um, we 
we uh, send our condolences and our absolute deepest sympathies to this family in this time for having to live through what is unthinkable. Mr. Romanucci, thank you for joining us. I promise to convey that. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. We'll be right back. It took 19 days from the day of the brutal police beating and death of Tyree Nichols for five officers to be indicted on charges, including second degree murder, kidnapping and official misconduct. The charges came just 16 days after Nichols' death. Now, that kind of rapid action happened mostly, probably because of the newly elected Shelby County District Attorney, who ran on a platform of various police accountability reforms, including implicit bias training to address racial profiling and de-escalation training tactics. And the Memphis chief of police has also spoken out about reforms, including on a national scale. So the kind of timeline we have seen in the Tyree Nichols case is not the norm when it comes to police violence against black Americans, especially when it comes to these killings that have been caught on video. In the 2014 killing of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, for example, in Chicago, which was captured on dash cam video, it took nearly 14 months for the police officer who killed him to be charged. In 2019, it again took 14 months for a Texas police officer to be charged in the killing of 44-year-old Pamela Turner. It took over three years for five police officers to be indicted in the 2019 brutal beating and death of unarmed Ronald Green in Baton Rouge, which again was captured on body cam video. That is it for us tonight.